There's an expression, I can't see the forest for the trees. I don't know if you've heard it before, what it means. Here's what it means. That there is a way to get so focused on small details, you miss the big picture. You see individual trees, but you miss the forest as a whole. The reason why I bring that up is because there's a way to do that, particularly in storytelling. You can get so focused in, whether it be in a book or in good movies or in a series of movies, you get so focused on details, you miss the, the grand narrative. You miss the plot of what's going on. <clears throat> I see this perhaps most clearly in the, uh, in the Marvel cinema. In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, otherwise known as the MCU, there is a great story that's being told in the first, I don't know, 58 films. I don't know how many they've made now. I mean, it's too many. They're all wonderful, but that's regardless, what they're doing is painting this big picture. In fact, the first big chunk of movies they had was known as the Infinity Saga, made up of a number of movies, each serving to move this big story as a whole on, where this big guy with a huge chin named Thanos wanted to get five rocks and destroy half the world. That's pretty much the story. If you haven't seen it, there it is. Cliff's Notes. Um, and in this, every single one of the individual movies, Thor, Captain America, the Hulk, although is it in the MCU or not, hot, hotly debated, who knows? The Avengers movies, Ant-Man, each of these individual movies stand on their own, but also serve to move the grand story forward. And if you get so focused in on the details of an individual movie, you'll miss the big picture. You'll miss the Infinity Saga, filled with some of the highest grossing movies of all time. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring all that up because as we turn now in Exodus, as we're walking through and get to Exodus chapters 25 through 27, there is a danger to get lost in the trees and miss the forest. There is a temptation to get lost in the details or glaze over with the details and miss the big picture of what God is doing. As you look at chapter 25 through 27, this is on the heels of God enacting and ratifying this old covenant with his people. This was chapter 24. So far, the high point in the book of Exodus. God has made this covenant with his people. So what's the first thing that he does? He calls Moses back up the mountain, and he gives them these instructions in chapters 25 through 27. And generally, what God is telling Moses to do here is to build a tabernacle and what this tabernacle will look like. Gives the dimensions, gives the furniture that's the inside of it, gives very specific instructions. And if you are going through a Bible reading plan, this may be the point where you drop off of that Bible reading plan. You get to chapter 26 and you get to such thrilling content such as you are to make upright supports of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each support is to be 15 feet long and 27 inches wide. Each support will have two tenons for joining. Do the same for all supports of the tabernacle. Make the supports for the tabernacle as follows. 20 supports for the south side. And make 40 silver bases under those 20 supports. Two bases under the first support and for its two supports. Then two bases under the next support for its two supports. 20 supports for the second side of the tabernacle and the north side. Just, I mean, I can feel everyone leaning in right now. <laughs> Just captivating. And there is a way, although I do see our setup and teardown team, the, the ops team, like this is, this is what we do. Every day, the bases, the pipe, the drape, this is the chapter made for you. And yes, I would say, when you see a picture of the tabernacle, it looks similar to this. It's a big rectangle filled with stuff like this all the way around the edge. It's a huge rectangle with a curtain at the very beginning to be able to walk into it. A huge courtyard then on the inside of that. And then right in the middle of this courtyard is this other room made with more tents. It was very intense in the wilderness. 
Been waiting all week for that. And in this separate room then, you walk in through another curtain and you walk into the holy place. And it's here we get the instructions. How big it's supposed to be, what's to be inside of it, a lampstand, a table. And then there's another curtain that you walk into or you're not, walk, not to walk into, the most holy place, the holy of holies. And behind it is the Ark of the Covenant. Again, given specifically on how to build it, what's to be inside of it. It's all in these chapters. And so in these chapters, 25 through 27, are these specific instructions for the tabernacle, which would later become the permanent temple in Jerusalem, where God's presence would dwell in this most holy place, in the Holy of Holies, seated on this Ark of the Covenant, and God would dwell amongst His people. It's central to the life and to the worship of the Jewish people. But again, if we're reading it, we may get lost in the trees And we may miss the forest. So what I want us to do a little bit differently this morning, I want us to step back and see how these three chapters fit into the story of the Bible as a whole. And to see how critical these three chapters are in the midst of the forest of what God is doing and what His heart is all about for His people. And so in order to do that, we've got to, before we get into 25 through 27, we've got to go back to the very beginning. We've got to go back to Eden. We've got to go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. As God creates his people in this garden of Eden. And in Eden, God dwells perfectly with his people. There's a perfect relationship and communion with his people. They see him face to face. They walk freely in his presence. There is no fear. Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. There is no sin. There is no condemnation. There is not only any division or separation between Adam and Eve and God. There's also no animosity or brokenness between the people in the garden or between the people and the earth in the garden. There is perfect peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. It's perfect. It was, in a word, our home. God placed us there in the garden. He dwelt with us and we were home. And there's a bit of us, I think, that we all have a longing for home. Every single person, whether you're a wanderer and you're trying to find home, or you're a nester and you're trying to make your home. All of us are one or the other. And there is this thing inside of all of us that's longing to get home. But here's the problem in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. If you're a note taker, there's kind of five points throughout. It won't be uh, on the slides. So if you're a note taker, you'll need to just jot these down real quick as we're going through. And it all deals, as we see this tabernacle, it deals around the idea of where our home is. The first point is we'll see the exile from home. The exile from home. The second point, we'll see the clues about home. The clues about home. Third, then, we'll see the way back home. The way back home. Fourth, we'll see the journey to home. The journey to home. And then fifth, we'll see the arrival at home. So, shorter, the exile, the clues, the way, the journey, the arrival. That's where kind of we're headed today. So first, as God's made this home, there's a problem. At the very beginning, we get exiled from this home. And not because God's just 
in a bad mood one day, it's because Adam and Eve sin against God. They rebel against God. There's this cosmic treason as they then look at God and they go, you know what, God, I have a better way for my life. I know what you told me to do. I think I've got a better idea and I'm going to do that. And they sin against God. They listen to the lie from the enemy, from the serpent, and they, they are deceived, they're tempted, they sin, and they are then cast out of Eden. They're exiled from home. And did you hear as... Isaac read earlier in the service in Genesis 3 that they are cast eastward. They're east then of Eden. They're cast out of the east side of the garden. And God then places two angels there to be able to guard their entrance. Two cherubim with flaming swords to make sure they don't enter back in to that presence. They are then exiled. And ever since then, there's been something in every single human being that knows that this world is off. This world is broken and damaged. And the whole scope of human history is humans trying to figure out how to overcome that. How to be able to correct that. And what we see throughout history, it's all futile in our own hands. Whether it be through power, whether it be through strength, whether it be through corruption, whether it be through pleasure, whether it be through even self-sacrificial service. On our own, we can't fix what was broken in this garden. And we are all exiled from our home with no hope to get back on our own. And this was the reality from, from Genesis 3 all the way up until Exodus 25. God's people were separated from God. And so what does God do in the Exodus? He steps in and He redeems His people. He doesn't wait for them to get their act together. He doesn't give them the law when they were slaves and go, okay, let's see how they do. If they get a 70 or above, then I'll go and redeem them. I may give them a curve. I know it's a hard test. We'll see. We'll see if they pass. He doesn't do that. He goes in and He says, these are my people. I want to dwell with them and they will dwell with me. And I'm going to go, I'm going to free them from slavery and redeem them to myself. That's exactly what He does. You get the ten plagues, Passover lamb, Egyptians then um, free the people of Israel. They walk, the Israelites walk through the Red Sea. They get on the other side of the Red Sea. God leads them to Sinai, which is where we are now. God meets with them on Sinai on the third day. We saw that in chapter 19. And then He speaks and gives them the Ten Commandments from Sinai. And then all the book of the covenant, that was this last week, 20 through 24. He gives them these rules and expectations of this relationship, this covenant, this promise, this oath from Him to this people. But then we get to 25 and 27, and God is saying, I'm not simply looking for a people to be free from slavery, and He's not even simply looking for people to follow His rules. What is God looking for? Well, it's the same reason why He created in the first place, to dwell with His people. So if you look at your Bibles in Exodus 25, this is the motivation between why God told, Aaron, told Moses to build this in the first place. Exodus 25, verse 8. It says, They are to make a sanctuary, a tabernacle, for me. Why? So that I may dwell among them. Friends, after the law is God then showing not just the sacrifice and the way in which they would be um, atoned for and forgiven when they would fall short of that sacrifice through the altar in chapter 24, but he's now showing the, the goal of that sacrifice is that he would dwell again among his people. It's a relational thrust. God wants to know and dwell with his people. This is what he's moving towards. And this is what the tabernacle is. And in the tabernacle, all through these instructions, there are clues about our home. 
This is the second point. All through here, this is where we're going to kind of piece through here a little bit, as we look for, um, you know, if you're, if, if you're a big fan of Dora the Explorer, get your magnifying glass out. There's a map. There's a map. There's a map right here. And we're going to look for the clues of what God is showing us. How can we get back home? Is what we're seeing here in 25 to 27. So as we read through, again, look for the clues about our home. Look for the clues about Eden all through these chapters. It begins in chapter 25. Look at verses 3 through 7. God begins by telling Moses the offerings that would be taken from the people and the materials needed to build the tabernacle. And notice some of these materials. Verse 3, the offering you receive, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat hair, ramskins. It goes down in verse 7. There's another thing here. He said, look for onyx along with other gemstones for mounting on the ephod and breastplate. A couple of these in particular would have the Israelites' warning flags going up, their radars going off. They would see gold here. They would see onyx here. And they would remember back to Genesis 2.12. In Genesis 2.12, the description of Eden says this, that gold from that land is pure. Delium and onyx are also there. That God is bringing gemstones and minerals from Eden to be used now in the construction of the tabernacle. These materials give clues about home. Secondly, the ark itself gives clues about home. This is chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. This description and specific instructions of the ark of the covenant. Again, it's not had by Harrison Ford. It's here in Exodus 25. And in Exodus 25, it's laying out all these descriptions. And in it, notice what goes inside of the ark. If you're ever on Bible Jeopardy one day, this is a great Jeopardy question. What are the three things in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the three things are the budded staff of Aaron, a jar of manna, and third, the two tablets of the law that are in the Ark. And in those two tablets of the law, again, it's uh, signifying the covenant that God made with His people. These are the laws that God gave His people to be able to live. This was, uh, hear this. In the law, through the Ten Commandments and following, God is revealing to them so that Israel can know what is good and what is evil. And your mind should start to spark. There was a tree in in Genesis, in Eden, that was given for the knowledge of good and evil. And here in the ark contains the same thing there in the law. Third, there's going to be a table in this tabernacle. This is chapter 25, verses 23 through 30. And on this table, Leviticus shows us, is the bread of presence. There's again this relational aspect to the tabernacle. As God is drawing His people in, He's preparing a table for them to eat bread, to dwell with them for the bread of His presence. God dwelling with His people and breaking bread with them. As He walks with them in the cool of the day, as Jim read earlier in Genesis, God is beginning that restoration to commune with and dwell with His people seen here in the table. A fourth, there's a lampstand, chapter 25, verse 31 through 40. And again, if you're just reading through it, you may miss, but look at the description in verse 31. It's base and shaft, it's ornamental cups, and it's buds and petals. Six branches are to extend from his side. Three branches on one side, three branches on the other side, and there are three cups shaped like almond blossoms with a bud and petals and one branch. You hear the language of a tree given to this lampstand. Again, supposed to get the mind back to the garden, back to the tree of life, the place where now there's another tree in God's presence here in the tabernacle. 
And next, we see the curtain that was given. There were three curtains in the tabernacle, one to enter into the courtyard on the outside, one to enter into the holy place, but then another one to enter into the most holy place. And that's the curtain. We talk about the curtain, that is the curtain. In chapter 26, verses 31 through 35. And the, this curtain was different than the other two. They all were similar. The first two were identical. And this curtain was similar to the other, th- to other two with one point of distinction. It was one detail that was different. Look at chapter 26, verse 31. You are to make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely spun linen. All that's the same as the other two curtains. But here's the distinction. But on this, make it with a design of cherubim worked into it. Now, why would God put cherubim on this curtain? Well, again, it's to get our minds back to Eden, where God placed cherubim to guard God's presence in the garden from anyone walking back into it. And here, those cherubim take their station again with the same function. Ain't no Israelite walking through that curtain if they wanted to live. That was reserved for one person, the high priest. Again, once a year on the Day of Atonement, after a number of rituals, ceremonies, washings, cleansing, to then be able to walk into that tent. And as he did it, they said that they would walk with a rope around his ankle in case he didn't do something right and he died, they could pull him out and wouldn't have to go in after him because then everybody else would die after that. This was the most holy place and the curtain separated this most holy place from God's people because there behind the curtain was the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwelt. The Ark was His footstool. It was His throne where He sat and dwelt among His people. But the problem is that a sinful people couldn't just waltz into the presence of a holy God. And they were separated still from His presence by the cherubim. God was dwelling amongst them, but there was still a separation. We see even lastly here in these clues, in the direction that the, uh, that the tabernacle faces. In chapter 27, verses 13 to 15, again, Moses is here writing, and he's describing the width of the courtyard on the east side towards the sunrise, saying it should be 75 feet across, or 50 cubits, depending on translation. Verse 14 God then tells Moses, make hangings 22 and a half feet long for one side of the gate, including their three posts and their three bases. And make hangings 22 and a half feet long for the other side, including their three posts and their three bases. And the gate of the courtyard is to have a 30-foot screen embroidered with blue, purple, scarlet yarn and finely spun linen. What he's describing here is the gate to enter into the tabernacle, into the courtyard. And in it, I want you to notice the direction that God tells Moses to face the tabernacle. He doesn't just go and say, hey, find a good area and just put it up however you can. They are to set it up in a very particular direction. And it is to face east toward the sunrise. The gate, the entrance into the tabernacle was to be facing the sun as it rose, facing east. Well, Why is that important? Again, it's important to go back to Genesis 3, and remember that as God cast humanity out of His presence, away from home, He cast them east of Eden. And in the tabernacle, what God is doing is making a plan and showing clues about how He will take His people who are now east of Eden and bring them back into His presence. There's a way in which it can happen, which is why it needed to face that direction, east of Eden, to bring these people back home. But there's a problem, right? The problem is that these sacrifices that were given on the altar 
had to be done every year, every month, every day. The presence of God behind the curtain wasn't accessible to the people. The cherubim weren't removed. People weren't welcomed back into His presence. It was good, but it wasn't back to where we were. We weren't back home. And so we see these clues about home all through the tabernacle in these chapters. What's the way back home? How can we get back home? Enter then Jesus, who describes himself this way. He's talking about the temple being torn down. The people around him are trying to figure out, what are you talking about, the temple being torn down? He said, well, don't worry. It'll be torn down, but it'll be built again in three days. And Lee and I had the chance to go to Jerusalem a few years ago. And some of the uh, stones are still there in the temple, in the foundation. And these stones are gigantic. And to the people's point, they're going, okay, Jesus, you're saying this whole thing's going to be torn down. You're going to build it in three days. There's, Jesus, that's crazy. There's going to be a building later in central Florida that will never be completed, this tower on I-4, and you think you can build this temple in three days? There's no way. And Jesus says, no, no, you missed it. He wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. He said, I am the temple. And I'll be buried, and in three days I'll build it back up and be raised again. What's he saying? Again, all this imagery, Jesus is wanting to communicate to his people that the tabernacle and the temple were there, given to God's people to show there is a way that God is planning to bring his people back into his presence for a holy God to dwell again with his people, not in fear and terror, but in joy, in relationship, in in peace and in grace. But the problem is that it hasn't been done yet. And Jesus comes and he says, I am going to be the way back home to you. I'm going to go and I'm going to bring you home. The temple and the tabernacle were never the end. They were to give you an understanding of what God was going to do. So you know how Jesus describes his ministry to his disciples right before he's killed? In John 14, it's on the upper room discourse. It's the longest continuing teaching of Jesus that we have. And it's here, right before he's crucified, right before he's betrayed, that he's giving his disciples this kind of final teaching. And here's what Jesus says he's going to go and do. John 14, verses 1 through 6, Jesus tells them, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms. Again, I want you to hear the, the, the ministry that Jesus is describing. He uses the understanding and the image of a home to describe it. In my Father's house, there's many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. You hear Jesus saying here, guys, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go to my Father's house. I'm going to go to this temple, this tabernacle. And in this house, there's many rooms. Now, since then, we've gotten further description of what this house will be like. It will be a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. A big, big yard where we can play football. There it is. Wow, there it is. Some people have been in the church for a little while. If you've never heard that song, or this is the first time you're in church, we are really this weird. But I hope that you see that Jesus isn't weird. But now in this, in that great song of uh, 
a musical composition describing the Father's house. Jesus is saying he's going away to this home and he's going to bring us there. He's going to bring us back home. He's going to go and prepare the place and bring us back to himself. But here's the problem, right? The disciples are hearing this. And they're going, Jesus, that all sounds great, but how do we get there? How do we get home? We want to go home. How do we get here? This is Thomas's question, right? Classic doubting Thomas. What a terrible nickname, right? With Thomas, he just had a hard time with the resurrection. I can give the guy some slack, right? And all of a sudden, he gets labeled as doubting Thomas. Anyway, poor guy. Thomas goes, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? We want to get back home. We want to get to the Father's house, the tabernacle, the temple, where we can dwell with him and we can dwell with you. But how do we get there? And what does Jesus say? He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you hear the context now in which Jesus gives that famous phrase, one of his seven I am statements in the Gospel of John? He is saying that God is continuing His mission to bring His people back home. And guess what? You can't get there, but that's why I'm here. I'm the way. I'm the way back home. The tabernacle, the temple was never the end. It was there to give you clues. There, The author of Hebrews calls it copies and shadows of the real thing. Well, what's the real thing? Jesus. He's the temple. He is in the truest sense God dwelling among His people. Is why in John 1, in, in John chapter 1, says that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in the Greek is literally translated as tabernacled. That Jesus is the tabernacle dwelling among us. The heart of God in Exodus 25, 8 to dwell amongst His people is seen fully in the gospel of Jesus Christ as He came to dwell amongst His people full of grace and truth and make a way back to the Father. Finally to Him. And here's what we see. We see that home is not a place. It's a person. Jesus isn't coming to bring us to the geographical location of Eden. He's coming to bring us to the Father. That's where home is. Jesus didn't come to get us back there. He came to get us back to the Father. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And listen, if you're here, you're not a Christian. This is sometimes some of the exclusive claims that are hard. And you go, God, so bigoted. Christians are just so bigoted and exclusive. And I can understand what you mean if this is not true. Because the claim of exclusivity on its own is not bigoted. The question is whether or not this is true. One of our family members was recently diagnosed with cancer. And the doctor told him, it's treatable. Here's the diagnosis. Here's the treatment. Here's the, way, here's the way forward. Here's the way for you to be healed. And you know what none of us did? None of us went, that doctor is so bigoted in his exclusive treatment. I can't believe it. One treatment? You know what we did? Oh, praise God that it's treatable. There's so many that don't hear that. And we're so glad that there's a way. So I want you to hear, again, don't let the exclusive claim in itself be what turns you away from Jesus. Wrestle with whether or not it's true. Because what we hear is not, oh, we've got all this together. We know the truth. Look at us. We've, we've got it all together. We have the answers here as Christians. I'll tell you, our posture, our posture is, why in the world would God choose me? Why would He save me? I'm just so grateful that He's made a way. It should lead us to humility. Because He is the way back home. 
So if Jesus came to make a way back to the Father, to go home and prepare a place for us to bring us back home, then what do we do until then? He's home. One day we will get home. What do we do until then? Well, this then shapes our understanding of our life here as a journey to home. The journey to home. We are, in a word, homeward bound. We are not home yet. We are strangers, exiles, and pilgrims here headed home. Whenever this begins to click in place, it not only impacts uh, theology or doctrine, it changes the way that we live our lives here entirely. Uh, The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16, writes about it this way. He's writing about kind of, it's known as the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. All these examples of people who lived by faith looking at what God had promised, living strange lives because they believed that what God said was greater than the circumstances around them. And he says this in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, that these, all the people in the hall of faith, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now, those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. You see, it's this understanding that these people in Hebrews 11, why did they do all the extraordinary things that they did? Why did Noah build an ark when no one had ever seen a drop of rain? Why did Abraham build a crib when he was 100 years old? Because they had their eye on a homeland and believed what God had promised despite their circumstances. And so they took another step forward. And they lived a way that people in their life, people in their around them, people in their culture, I'm sure looked at them and said, why are they doing this? They look like idiots. These are strangers. They're, they're living these, making these weird decisions. Well, friends, they are making it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They are headed home. They're not trying to make this place their home. They are headed home. And this gets down into us. That's the question I want us to ask as we then begin to try to apply this in our lives is this. Are you seeking a homeland or are you attempting to make a homeland? Are you seeking the homeland where God has called you, that our home is in heaven? Or are you doing everything in your effort to make this place your home? Listen, consumerism feeds right into this temptation. Give us everything we want. Make us as comfortable as possible. Let's make this place our home. Friends, are are we making decisions in our life, with our careers, with our money, our possession, with our marriages, with our retirement, are we making decisions that make it clear that we're seeking a homeland? Or does it look really no different from the people around us? Not one of the things that Leah and I, my wife and I love to do, we love to stay in hotel rooms. There's just something magical about being in a hotel. I don't know, you can just sit down and you can flip through and watch HGTV for hours. And you can do that anywhere, but there's just something about being able to do it in a hotel room. And you go down, you get a continental breakfast, and I don't know what continents they pull this stuff from, but... <laughs> It's always going to be a cheese Danish and like some waffles. And I'm like, there's like two, what? I, anyway, still, we love it. 
The yogurt that you can buy at Walmart, but still you get it there on the ice that's kind of melted and there's just something magical about it. I love going there. love going to hotels. But as we go, imagine if I were to go and as we checked in one night, we take our luggage, we go up the elevator, we walk into our room, begin to get situated, and then I then leave, go back down to the car. Leah's, I didn't tell her why, Leah's probably scratching her head, oh, where's, where's you want to get? I come back up, I've got my toolkit, I've got my drill, and I've got a few things, uh, construction projects. And I begin to make a, a new dresser. Theirs was fine, but I felt like we could expand it and really get all of our clothes in here. It'd be great. The bed was nice, but I thought I needed a new bed frame. So I started to take apart theirs and kind of construct a new one. And then it just felt, it just felt closed. I, I wanted more of an open concept, so I just tore the wall down in between us and the next room to give us more space. And the whole time, Leah would be wondering, A, is he going to go to prison? And B, what is he doing? Why is he going towards all this effort, which is A, I'm fairly certain illegal, and B, we're checking out tomorrow. What is he thinking? And friends, I worry and I wonder if for some of us, if we live our lives today trying to make our home in a hotel room, putting all of our effort trying to make comfortable a world in which we will be here, as the Bible describes, in a vapor, in a mist, in the, in, the, in the grand scheme of eternity, we're checking out of this world tomorrow. And are we living like we're ready to go home? Or are we trying to do everything we can to try to get home here? You see the people in Hebrews 11? What did it say? They saw what God had promised and they greeted it. And they embraced it. And then they allowed those promises to shape their current circumstances. You hear that? They saw them from a distance. They greeted these promises. And they confessed then that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. The first thing is to see what God has promised what home will be like. To see what He promised what this world will be like. And to believe what God has said and what He has promised will in fact come to pass. But the importance is not just seeing it, but greeting it embracing it, loving and believing that what God said is true and beginning then to make decisions in our life today based on the greeting and embracing of those promises for tomorrow. Confessing that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth and that they are seeking a homeland. Friends, there are decisions in your life that should be shaped by where we are headed. As somebody said once, again, the author of Hebrews has given me tremendous freedom as a preacher in how he preaches. Whenever he gets to Hebrews 2 and he goes, someone somewhere has said, and then quotes the Bible. I'm like, I can say that then. So I don't remember who said this, but God, Holy Spirit, inspired the author of Hebrews to say it. So therefore, I can too. So someone somewhere said this. If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And friends, I think so many Christians don't see where we're going. And we make decisions maybe based on what's best today or tomorrow but we don't see where we're headed. And if we don't know where we're going, if we don't have a goal that we're working towards, then any path will get you there. Again, this plays itself out in so many different ways. One of the most direct ways with money, possessions, stuff. And Jesus is always saying this, right? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where thieves can break in and steal, where, wrath, uh, where, where um, moths and rust can, can destroy, but store up treasures in heaven Live your life today with an eye on eternity. That's the principle. 
See that you're a pilgrim, a stranger, an exile here, journeying home. You're in a hotel room. Don't make all of your effort trying to get the comfort here because comfort is coming. God has sent His comforter for the journey. He's helped us along the way. He will keep us along the way. But one day we will stand before Him face to face and then every tear will be wiped away. Every pain will be removed. Every sorrow will be undone. And everything will be made new. But that is coming. It's not yet. But that's where we're headed. And that's where we get to the final point as we see our arrival at home. As we're journeying, this is the place where we're going. This is our destination. This is the arrival at home. This is how the whole Bible ends. Again, this is why I'm making the claim that this is what I would kind of describe as the grand story of the Bible. God's plan, God's heart, plan, and attempts to be able to dwell with His people. Beginning with Genesis and ending with Revelation 21 and 22. And here's the Apostle John has this vision of the future in Revelation 21. And he describes it this way in verses 1 through 3. He said, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. This is all language of this kind of eternal dwelling with God of heaven, as we we often describe it as. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. And here's what what he hears. Look at chapter 21. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne and said this, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. All of redemptive history has been moving to this. For God's dwelling to be with His people. And He will live with them. They will be His peoples. And God Himself will be with them and will be their God. Friends, you hear that promise throughout the Bible. First time you hear is in Exodus 6 before God goes and redeems His people. But this is what he's always been doing and preparing for us this final reality, this arrival when we get home and we will then dwell with him perfectly. And all the sadness, all the tears, all the sorrow, all the pain of this world will be undone. Right? That's the very next uh, sentence in this book. In Revelation 21, verse 4, John says this, and then, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. This is what all of redemptive history is moving towards. God undoing the curse that entered in Genesis 3. And that drove his people out of their home and exiled them. He's finally now getting to the point of what the tabernacle was giving us clues about and what Jesus was making the way back to. This is then the arrival in Revelation 21. And the description of it in chapter 22 sounds eerily similar. This great city, you may go, Caleb, that's great, but we're moving to a city. You talked about going to a garden, going back to Eden, going back home. Listen to chapter 22. Verse 1, then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. And the tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing fruit every month. In this city, there's a river and there's the tree of life. And God is wanting his people to see this brings us back to the very beginning 
to this tree of life that the people were excluded and exiled from. God has now brought them back to dwell with Him, and the tree of life is here. And yes, it's a city, but in Revelation 21 and 22, it's a garden city. As God has now completed this ark of redemption and brought His people back to dwell with Him. And the culmination of all of it in verse 4, they will see His face. That at one point when His people couldn't walk into His presence, no one could see God's face or they would die. This is moving us forward to whenever Jesus, through His work, would be able to reconcile us back to a holy God and ultimately glorify us in resurrected bodies to dwell with Him for all of eternity and to look at the face of our Creator. And you may hear that and go, some of you may hear that and go, oh, praise God. That's, that's what we're moving towards. But some of you may hear that and go, I mean, that sounds like I'm supposed to be excited, but I'm just not that excited about it. I'm going to see his face. What does that mean? Listen, part of that I can't really explain. I don't think any of us can because no one has seen his face and live. We see in the Old Testament. But I did try to think in some ways um, how to be able to try to express the magnitude and what's the significance of this. Because one, I hope you see, the whole arc of the Bible is relational. God's looking to dwell with His people, to live with them. God's moving into our neighborhood. It's not just simply religious. It's not just simply hear the things you need to do. It's not hear the, the laws and everything to work your way back up to me. The story of Christianity is God coming down the mountain and bringing us up to Himself. So we could dwell with Him. It's relational. And so I think about other relationships in our lives. And God has already done this. God has hardwired and designed marriage to give us an understanding of His relationship with Christ and the church. And so I think about the relationship with Leah and I. I think about if I go on a long trip, a week or two. We live in a day and age that's unprecedented with access to one another. I can travel around the world and hold up a screen that's 6.1 inches in uh, diameter. And I can hold it up and I can FaceTime her. I can look at her and talk to her in real time as though she's right here. She can then show me our kids as they're they're there and I'm on the other side of the world and I can talk to them. I can see them. They can show me the latest masterpiece that they've they've drawn that may be um, Picasso's great portrait or it may be a potato man. I'm not entirely sure. But I'm excited all the same because I'm their dad and everything they make is wonderful. And we have unprecedented access to one another in today's age. But But here's what I think each of us know. If you're gone for a significant amount of time, some of you I know work from home. I mean, work away from home. Some of you have worked as linemen. You've been gone for weeks, months at a time. My father-in-law would work on barges in Singapore for months at a time before he'd come home. And guess what? Back in the 70s, they didn't have FaceTime. They had a thing called letters you had to write. Faxes. A facsimile. What does that? No one even knows what that means. That lasted like two years before we were like, oh, this was a bad idea. But today we have unprecedented access. But even still, with that kind of access, there is something different whenever I get home. There's something different when I walk in the door and I'm there and I see Leah face to face again. And we sit down and we just watch a movie. We spend time with We'd have the same conversation we could have over the phone, but it's different being there in her presence. Friends, there is unprecedented access we have to the Father now through Jesus Christ. 
We can boldly approach the throne of grace, something Old Testament saints would have known nothing about. But even still, with that kind of access, there is something different that will take place when we walk through the doors and we get home and we stand there in the presence of our Creator and we see Him face to face for the very first time. This is what creation is moving us towards. This is what the story of redemption is moving us towards. This is, in a sense, the story of the entire Bible. Humanity running away from home, thinking we've got a better plan. But then our Father moving heaven and earth to dwell again with His children until finally we see Him face to face again. And in Exodus chapters 25, 26, and 27, God is laying the foundation through His tabernacle, through the altar, through the lampstand, through the table, through the courtyard through the Holy of Holies, through the Ark of the Covenant, through the curtain. He's laying the foundation of His plan to get to us until He gets us back home. See, we walk in from the east. We walk in from east of Eden. Imagine being there right after the tabernacle was built. And you walk through that curtain for the very first time. You pull back the curtain and what do you see? What we see in Exodus 25 through 27, the first thing you see when you pull back the curtain is the altar right there in front of you. So they're in the middle of the courtyard right when you walk in. It's meant to make a statement. And that statement is that we have no right walking into the presence of God unless our sin is somehow dealt with. We have to be forgiven and we have to be, our sin has to be atoned for. And so front and center in the courtyard is the altar, the place where sacrifices for my sin would be offered consistently. Animals killed, blood spilled, something dying in my place for my sin. This is the basis of a restored relationship with God. But then we move past the courtyard and we pull back that next curtain to walk into the holy place. And what do we see? We see furniture. Kind of like any house would have. A fireplace and a table. And that table, being primarily for food, almost like a dining table, showing us God's heart for us to enjoy His presence again as He invites us to have a meal with Him. And then there's the curtain. Separating us from the most holy place in the place where God's presence dwells. This is the curtain that's keeping us from death. It's the curtain that's keeping us from the presence of God. But friends, I hope you see now the whole story of the Bible, that God's presence was never meant to be contained. God's presence was meant to be enjoyed. But how do we get there? How do we enter into the most holy place? The tabernacle doesn't give us the answer for that. But enter our great tabernacle, the true and better tabernacle, Jesus Christ, who calls us from the far country that we've run to east of Eden. And as we enter this truer and better tabernacle, what's the first thing we see? We see the cross. We see the place where the sacrifice was made that is the basis of our restored relationship to God. The Lamb of God was killed. His blood spilled. Someone dying in my place for my sin. But this sacrifice on this altar didn't need to be repeated yearly, monthly, or daily. His sacrifice was complete and sufficient. Not simply to cover my sins, but to remove my sins and to take it away. That's why John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus for the first time in John chapter 1, What is his declaration? Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the earth. Not just to cover them up and kind of hide them, to take them away. And when Jesus on the cross said it was finished, he meant it. And he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. And his sacrifice is complete. And we move past that altar 
We move past the cross and we move into the holy place. And as we pull back the curtain on this truer and better tabernacle, we see some familiar things. We see light and we see bread. Surrounded by darkness, we see no light. We see that there is the light of the world that has now come to overcome the darkness. And no darkness can overcome that light that shines into it. That Jesus is the light of the world. And not only is He the light of the world, but He is also the bread of life. And as we taste that bread of life, He satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. As we are welcomed back into fellowship, into communion with our Creator, with a holy God. But now we're back at the curtain. It's the same problem. How can we enter into His presence? But the psalmist in Psalm 24.1 asks it this way, thinking of Mount Sinai, God's presence dwelling at the top. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? None of us can in our own. But how do we walk in? Well, here's what happened when Jesus died. Matthew 27, Matthew's gospel records it this way in verses 50 to 51. On the cross, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. And suddenly... In the same moment, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn from top to bottom. The veil that had separated God from humanity was now torn because the sacrifice was complete. And God's people could now boldly approach His presence because of the finished work of Christ. Because He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And enter back into a relationship with Him. And the separation between God and man has now been removed. Access is now ours. And this high priest has not brought God to us. He has brought us to God as He is the way back to the Father and He is the way back home. This is what Jesus and the tabernacle were moving us all towards. That's why the author in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 20 puts it this way in his conclusion of Jesus' priestly ministry. He said, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, since we have boldness to enter the tabernacle through the blood of Jesus, He has inaugurated for us a new and a living way through the curtain. That is through His flesh. The author of Hebrews helps us see that the way back to God is through Jesus. The veil was torn, but friends, so also was the body of Christ. His body was broken and His blood was spilled. And as Jesus died, that veil was torn. As He then received the punishment for our sin so that we could be reconciled back to a holy God, restored to Him, to draw near to Him today with the confidence and the hope that one day we'll finally get back home and we will see Him there face to face. And the clues in the map, if you've had your magnifying glass out, are seen all through these chapters in Exodus 25, 26, and 27 as God has been desiring in the very beginning to dwell amongst His people. Let's pray.